because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. When there's no guest here and we have yeah. no, there's no pressure yeah, to like, yeah, yeah. We you get know, be, to like perform for yeah. our, you know, for people who were intimidated I know, you by. didn't even write an intro. I know. I what just, the fuck? I'm so unprepared. Oh boy, here we go. It's Cows in the Field, yo. This is a podcast where we explore philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And uh, today we're talking about Jurassic Park. I say 1994 Steven Spielberg he made two movies this year which is completely nuts he's a madman and um, it took its toll on him something we're going to talk about written by Michael Crichton and David Kep, based on the book by Michael Crichton I had read I think some Crichton I don't think I had read this one okay. I had read another one did he write the Andromeda strain you know that I couldn't tell that you. That sounds like familiar. I, I should double You know that, that I get, I for a long time got Crichton and Grisham mixed up. Yeah, very different people. <laughs> but anyway, here we are. We're talking about Jurassic Park. And, and I want to start with the following question. I mean, did you watch this movie growing up or were you, did you watch it for the first time last night? <laughs> I did not watch it for the first time last night. But I think I did watch it for the, all the way through for the first time when we were dating. Like, okay. 2012. So no, I did not watch this as a child for a combination of reasons. Mm. One, it's scary. Very scary. It's super scary. And as I've already covered on Mike, like my dad had to go, had to like help me get through my insane terror of any amount of scariness in movies right. through like a desensitization program. Right. And when we did that, we mostly focused on the horror genre and not action movies. But this movie is and scary and so i skipped it as a kid and my parents really were not spielberg fans well when did you watch it for the first time i think 2012 oh, okay so with me we, yeah I but like, i think hey I, there's this movie jurassic park it's really good right you've I, all, we've all seen it I you're mean, like uh, i never. had heard of it of course i think like i had absorbed it you know through the merch and like through the kidified stuff and right. like all the toys that got sold from it um, and I had seen clips of it on, and I it's, it was it ended up on TV quite a lot, and yeah. so I think I saw pieces of it, but I don't think I ever saw the movie all the way through. See, I think I had the opposite experience with the movie because I saw it so many times growing up. Yeah, so I, the, your parents an uncountable owned it. number of times. I so so much so that when we rewatched the movie, I. I was like, I don't actually need to rewatch this movie. I know every beat of this movie. And it had been years since I right. had seen it. It had been almost a decade since Meanwhile, I had seen it. Meanwhile, I had it. completely forgotten about the cold open. Completely and utterly. Yeah. I did not. Because I think I've only seen it maybe this is my third time it's to watch it. entirely possible I saw this movie in theaters. And it's very You're scary. You're so brave. Um, yeah, I would have been 10. I mean, it, it's very scary. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's actually funny. I mean, my brother refused to watch it for a long time. So... I'm just putting him on blast right now, but uh, you know he was so scared. Yeah, because he it. was he like an infant when this he was three or four years old when this movie came. No, yeah, two but, when this movie but, came out. But I mean, it's not like we were showing we were taking him to the theaters. But I'm just saying, you know, 
he would have been like 16, 17 and refused to watch. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's a really good movie. And I think that was the reason we would come back to it again and again. And that was on all the time. And then I think, you know, friends would want to. It was a movie that people would want to watch. I just had this like totally wrong. And because of my because my folks were not that big as Spielberg fans, because I had kind of passed it by and it was sort of like became part of the like sort of mix of 90s movies that I did not partake in, like say Armageddon. I kind of just thought it was like a, a little bit more disposable than it was. I thought it was just like part of like many, many, many action flicks from that period of time that were not particularly special. Um, and so when we watched it in 2012, I was like, what? This is a perfect film. I didn't know that it was a perfect film. Yeah. How did you, I not know well, that? It has a lot of things that you like in movies <laughs> in that it has horror elements. But it also has, you know, nerd deep, elements. Well, it has a sort of deeper themes, and it's not really a straightforward horror film. It's like a horror film transposed into a pop film, a little bit like how Titanic is mm-hmm. a kind of horror film inside of the pop romance sort of totally. grandeur of Hollywood type film. Um, yeah, I mean, this film does a lot right. I think it has really effective storytelling. As I mentioned, it's blending genres and it's blending them really effectively in a way where it's almost transcending genre. You know, you can't really classify it except for blockbuster. But within even blockbuster, it's scarier than most blockbusters. It has more going on under the hood than most blockbusters. I think the other thing that is to its credit is it's um, the way it deploys the narrative is incredibly efficient. Mm -hmm. It doles out the narratives quickly efficiently and never feels like it's dragging and the character development is done again very efficiently but also in ways that are really interesting and tie into the larger themes of the film absolutely there's no piece of information that does not come back it feels like everything you find out about a dinosaur you're gonna see it right you know and in a violent scene of somebody's death um or or not but but sorry what were you gonna yeah say, so i mean i wanted to to i mean l- but before we get to the dinosaurs killing yeah. people uh let's start with how the characters get to jurassic park mm-hmm. so the film starts with this cold open and a guy gets killed by a dinosaur this creates a lawsuit for john hammond who's running this island that he's where he's sort of playing god creating these dinosaurs we later learn that he's been extracting their dna in this complex recherche process and then sort of cloning them using frog DNA. And he needs, in order to assuage his investors, he needs to bring in some experts to sort of give a thumbs up to the lawyer. And the lawyer who represents, I believe... To say this is safe and viable? Is is what he needs? I guess so. But the funny thing is that he doesn't bring in any safety experts. (laughs) He only brings in paleontologists and a chaos theory person. No, the chaos theory person is is there from the lawyer. lawyer The lawyer brought the chaos guy to be like, it's going to be chaos. (laughs) And so he brings paleontologists. So it's his thinking, like, well, I'll bring paleontologists because they're going to be like, whoa, dinosaurs. We Who loves dinosaurs more than a paleontologist? Right. Is that the thought? I think so. I think yeah. they're going to be like, Rather than this a, like, is a worthwhile pursuit that is important and entertaining, but also like a scientific, you know, incredible discovery. And so we are going to argue for why it should be. Yeah. Why Even it though con- it's supposed to be a safety measure, right? It's like the safety protocols are what was at issue here. Nobody yes. was is in doubt that this the, the, is an amazing cool. thing. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> I mean, who would doubt? This dude brought dinosaurs back from the dead. That You don't need a paleontologist to tell you that's to be, cool. That's incredible. 
Yes. No, I agree with you. And uh, don't worry too much about it. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the he gathers this ragtag group of misfits. And we've got Sam Neill as Dr. Grant, who's a paleontologist. Laura Dern as Ellie, who's a paleobotanist. Botanist. Okay. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum is Ian Malcolm. He's the chaos theoretician. And then you've also got Gen- Martin Ferrero as Gennaro, the lawyer. And so they all go to the island. They see some dinosaurs. They meet up with Hammond's grandkids and all hell breaks loose. I tell you what, why don't you come down, just the pair of you, for the weekend? I'd love to have an opinion of a paleobotanist as well. <laughs> I've got a jet standing by a choco. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, this is less than possible. This is a... We just dug up a new skeleton. Right, well, I could compensate you by fully funding your dig. And this is a very unusual time. For a further three years. Where's the plane? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) The thing I thought was really cool watching the movie this time, this is the first time I've watched it really as an academic and really thinking about like, oh, yeah. Now I do have to go get funding like these paleontologists. <laughs> and it is funny. It was quir- a funny quirk of the movie that, yeah, they're, they don't want to go to the island. Hammond's mm-hmm. like, you want to come. It's going to be amazing. And they're like, well, we're digging up a dinosaur, right? That's like what our job is. And he's like, well, mm, I'll fund your dig for three years. And at that point, Grant and Ellie are, are say, sure. They're like on the plane. Let's go. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, th- I think that is... Both a quirky, funny thing for me, but it also plays into the first theme that I want to talk about today, which is the relationship between science and money and also commodification, mm-hmm. right? This is this feature that I think a lot of people who do research face, you know, an aspect of research, which is that you have to sell your research to people. And so this de- interplay, I think, is is at the core of scientific research. And it's, I think, Crichton being a science type writer guy knows this world. Um, and that's how we're thrown into it. And I think one of the things that when they get to Jurassic Park, you get uh, Hammond dis- sort of at one point talking with Ellie. This is after things have gone bad. And he is sort of saying it from his side. So she represents the scientist, the seeker of truth, and so on. And he tells his side of the story. And he's not a scientist. Right. What is he? And he says, well, you know, my first attraction was a flea circus, which, as we all know, I actually had never caught this when I was a kid. I never understood what he meant by this. But of course, a flea, it's just a it's an illusion. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a, a very small diorama thing. And you're supposed to tell it, tell enough of a story that kids will imagine a bunch of fleas dancing around and doing things. But it's fake. And that's what Hammond is at the end of the day. He's a salesman and a showman. And a faker. Um, he's like a circus guy, mm-hmm. ultimately. And he's a great and powerful Oz. Exactly. He's Oz. And so he knows how to commodify and bring to the masses the research that the paleontologists and the geneticists and all these people have been working on. And the hackers, right? <laughs> he knows how to take that research out of the hands of these people who have, you know, no people skills. Right? Think of all the people who are working behind the scenes in Jurassic Park. No people skills. <laughs> right? But he is incredibly charismatic. He has such yeah. people skills. He's so good 
at creating that sense of awe and that joy in people, right? And he's so convincing. Even to the end of the movie, you're like, this guy's bad, but he's also... I like kind of love him. Yeah, I know. You feel sorry for him when, when, even though like this is all his fault, yeah. and it's a dumb, dumb idea. He should have seen this one coming. But yeah, I do feel sad for him when he's just sitting there eating all his melted ice cream. But that's what it is. He is this guy who can sell anyone on anything and make you love him. And I think that the scientist, the researcher, the sort of cave troll so to speak working away <laughs> needs that type of person as well mm-hmm. to sort of survive it's an ecosystem it's an important partnership and yep. you know i think of course at this on the other hand he is that is hammond is accused of malcolm at one point of being a thief right he says you stand on the shoulders of giants and you steal from them from their ideas but you don't really understand them so he's accused of basically not being able to appreciate the science he's using because he's not himself a scientist. Mm-hmm. He's not actually in the trenches doing the research. Right. He's just profiting from it. And so there's <laughs> that's the flip side is that, you know, he's ultimately a faker, right? And right. as a result, he fails to foresee the consequences that all these other scientists can foresee. Right. Sorry, I just thought about him as like, He's not quite Elizabeth Holmes, but he's kind of, right? He's like got all the showmanship. Yeah. And he feels like something ought to be. And he doesn't actually know how it's going to happen. Well, he's, In this case, it does. He does have the I science. I think it's Steve or, Jobs. But it's I Steve think Jobs. he's more like Steve Jobs. Like Elizabeth Holmes, because she was a liar, right? He actually did have <laughs> the technology. But what he could do that, that like Wozniak couldn't do was he understood how to package it, right? right? He understood how to take this thing which Wozniak could only see as ones and zeros and envision it as, you know, the iPad. That's the world we live in, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. is people are going to want to use technology for le- leisure purposes or whatever it is, scientific results for leisure purposes, and you're going to need people who can interface that. Because if right. you want to continue doing the research, you need to basically have that kind of output, so to speak. Right. That was the thing that when I was in fundraising in the universities, we talked a lot about um, the university should be the places where, you know, we where scientists and, and academics can continue to find funding for something that doesn't immediately have like a commodification plan, like that doesn't immediately go into production of some product that people can buy, blue sky research. And even then in universities, it's becoming, you know, harder and harder and harder. Yep. And that's the kind of research that it's not exactly a one to one, but paleontology is a re- is there's no there's no like you know dollar sign and at the end of at the end of that pursuit of knowledge for paleontologists they're just trying right. to find out what happened behind us and there's yeah. not necessarily any way to make money from that it's like the equivalent of blue sky research well, where we don't know where it's going. That's really. right. That's the thing is is that <clears throat> you know there's there's a sort of pursuit of knowledge for its own sake there's that but it's hard to convince people of that right? yes but the, but on the flip side it's like not everything has an immediate payoff but the other thing is that you don't necessarily know what the payoff of the, in terms of some of the most practical value discoveries come from like not having a plan that yeah, way yeah my yeah. favorite example of this is the computer we're sitting here recording this on a computer you're listening to it on an iphone probably um you know, that the computer was an invention that came about because a bunch of logicians and mathematicians were trying to figure out what would happen if you could run algorithms, basically. And they were just working out theoretically what this thing that they called a computer would do. 
and they were just trying to figure out okay like let's let's think about the 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 basis of computation what computability is and if there are limits to it and they figured it out really quickly actually they figured out what the actual there there are theoretical limits to computation and computability like what kinds of things can be computed those were done by philosophers those results were found by philosophers and logicians when they were working that out in the 30s nobody was gonna foresaw the iPhone, or you know, about the home computer. Yeah, you know, there the was iPhone. no such. There was not. not was, nobody was thinking about that. Yeah, and so you know, it's that's what I always tell people is like, yeah, philosophy. Who knows what the output is going to be? Um, you, you know, I think that you, you know, being open minded is funding research that doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Right. Not because necessarily you're gambling that it will, but just be you're open minded and you think, well, let's see what happens, right? Because it could not just lead to interesting practical benefits for people could open up new avenues of research which themselves could lead to practical benefits or they could lead us to see the world in new ways and all these things. So, you know, it's one of these interesting connections where you're, it's, I think a lot of times people only see the immediate, right? If they're Hammond type people, they only see the science for how it can benefit, right? And they're not necessarily thinking maybe long-term or thinking the science for its own sake. Um, I mean, it's the same for art. I mean, you came from the the world of art history, and the you know this movie embodies that tension that is you really feel in Steven Spielberg's career. Yes, of art for its own sake, right? Like the, the you know the important art of say Schindler's List, the movie that he made also in 1994, and a kind of commodity that is created for the consumption and pleasure of of individuals it's not sort of artistic in the same way it's broader and it's intended to serve a different purpose um but spielberg kind of embodies both of those i wonder if hammond and spielberg are alike in in having a kind of ambivalent or dual relationship to the commodification the the money part of art and entertainment. What I meant to, what I was interested in about Hammond is that he talks about spare no expense. Of course he wants this park to be to be successful, but I think his focus is mostly on bringing awe to people and inspiring people and he wants to entertain people most of all. And you he sort of understands that you in order to have that happen, like there has to be money exchanging hands, right? Mm-hmm. There has to be a gift shop. But I don't get the sense that what Hammond is about is like, I really want to make this much money on like admissions and this much money on the backpacks and this much money on the food. Like he's not, he makes, he talks about the blood sucking lawyer a lot. You can tell he kind of has a disdain for somebody who's interested in that kind of bottom line or that kind of profit. Mm -hmm. Um, He even says that we should cap the admissions prices. Right. He wants it to be for everybody, yeah. which you feel like too Spielberg wants to make art for everybody, right? His movies are accessible and family friendly because you get the sense he wants to everybody to like be entertained and experience awe and wonder in his films. He also understands that in order to continue making films, he has to they have to be successful. And that's not just like the box office, but there's all the other stuff around it too, right? Like I feel like there's this when you see the backpacks, the Jurassic Park backpacks in the gift shop, it's meant to be sort of like gauche or eye roller, like ugh, like this 
the dinosaur part is really cool, but it's kind of gross that they finished the the gift shop before they've even finished the park. Like that's something that they were thinking about. It's sort of corny, mm-hmm. the backpacks. And yet at the same time, you know, in 1993, you could go and buy that exact bag- backpack at Toys R Us, mm-hmm. like immediately. And Spielberg also knows like he's got to make movies that, you know, have like toy deals with Mattel, right? It's like all part and parcel with it. And I feel like there might be some parts of that he does not love. And but he understands that in order to be like an entertainer, you have to have a certain relationship with that stuff. You're right. I mean, it's film is also a populist medium, right? It's not the long form New Yorker article or the novel or, you know, it's it's the most populist form of entertainment we have. I mean, maybe now it's television, but but film was that in its time. And so I think you're right. Spielberg isn't trying to break with who he is as a populist entertainer but it, he, there's a f- sort of fraught relationship there. there's he a definite kind of, criticism of capitalism yeah. in this movie there's yeah. a criticism of capitalism and this you know pure you know tunnel vision drive for profit in jaws and yet those two movies are blockbuster films that made a lot of money and allowed spielberg to continue making movies that make a lot of money yeah <laughs> that's like part of his identity is that he makes blockbusters and I think he like embraces that, but yet his he loves these movies that are also critical of greed and capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's just funny. Yeah, I mean, I think what I was just saying is I think there's a there's like a kind of tension in this like, well, I'm an artist and I don't care about money, but then yes. you're in this populist medium, and I think Spielberg kind of recognizes that and embraces the populist side of it as well. And I, that's maybe to your point. And you know, I mean, as opposed to someone who's like, I make movies, but like only for people who are really smart. Right. And you're like, well, why are you making movies then? You could do anything else. Right. Like, you know, you, you this costs a lot of money. It's the whole goal is it's seen by lots of people. Um, if you wanted to just create something that is only going to be engaged with by 50 people, then you should be a philosopher. Right. <laughs> 50 people. I mean, if, if you're lucky. trying to toot your own horn If over you're there. lucky. <laughs> But yeah, I wonder like if the the blood sucking lawyer is sort of like a little bit meant to be like a like a producer, you know, somebody in the the suit in like Universal who are immediately like, we're going to make 15 of these. We're going to have toys. We're going to like they're thinking like way beyond the edges of the movie. And Spielberg is just like, I want this to look really good. Again, I want want people to be like, holy crap, when they see the diet, when they see the T-Rex, you know, he's like focused on the story and the movie itself and everybody else around him is like, all right, like when we make this much box office, we're going immediately to Jurassic Park 2, put it in production, yeah. you know, right? <laughs> which, you and know, the Jurassic Park theme world, theme and world, yeah, they're already building it at Universal, show. cartoon yeah. show, toys, you know, McDonald's tie-ins, right. all that stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. And poor Spielberg, like he's like, I'd like to make a movie about the Holocaust. It's going to be really good and quite consumable, quite watchable. It's just not going to have any McDonald's tie ins. Yeah. And and like, mm. Universal's like, do you have to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah. Well, you, the Universal was like, you had me at the Holocaust. <laughs> no. And we can charge anything we want 2000 a day, 10000 a day, and people will pay it. And then there's the merchandise. I can personally Donald. Add, Donald. This park was not built to cater only for the super rich. Everyone in the world has the right to enjoy these animals. Sure, they will. What, we'll have a a coupon day or something. (laughs) 
I mean, the other aspect of it that seems infused in the movie is that the you know all the central plot points of the movie are monetarily motivated. Yes. I mean, as you as we mentioned, the 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 way Hammond gets the scientists to the to the island is by promise of funding. Promise of funding. The whole reason the lawyer is there in the first place is this twenty million dollar lawsuit, which has gotten the hackles up of the investors, which has sent the lawyer to Jurassic Park, which has asked for them to like meet have somebody to. To val, you know, to weigh in on whether or not this this park is safe and val and viable. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And of course, then the whole reason the dinosaurs escape is because um, what is the name of the character? Nedry. Dennis Dennis Nedry, um, feels asked for a raise, didn't get a raise from Hammond, and now decides to sell dinosaur embryos on the side. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's like you know, in a way, yeah, it's this greed is is the downfall of. Of, you know, maybe what would have been a perfect dinosaur utopia. Right. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, on both ends. I mean, it, it's like maybe you know, there's even a conversation where Nedry is like, you should pay me more. And Hammond is like, that's your problem. Your money problems are your money yeah. problems. Yeah. <laughs> and he, as much as he talks about sparing no expense, he constantly says spare no expense, spare yeah. no expense on all of the, all of the, you know, gadgets and the ice cream but he's not paying his staff well apparently <laughs> i mean who knows how much nedry wanted but i don't doubt that like he's probably not getting paid enough considering he's automating an entire park full of dinosaurs <laughs> i'm totally unappreciated in my time you can run this whole park from this room with minimal staff for up to three days you think that kind of automation is easy or cheap you know anybody who can network eight connection machines and debug two million lines of code for what I bid for this job? Because if you can, I'd love to see I'm him try. Sorry about your financial problems, Dennis. I really am, but they are your problems. Oh, you're right, John. You're absolutely right. You know everything's my problem. I will not get drawn into another financial debate with you, Dennis. I really will not. There's been hardly any debate at all. I don't blame people for their mistakes, but I do ask that they pay for them. Thanks, Dad. It is interesting that you're right, that it's Nedry who's the computer guy, right? Who is the one who feels underpaid. So it's almost like Hammond is thinking, well, there are these people who are doing the real work. They're making dinosaurs out of nothing. Right. And this guy's just hacking around on his computer like he's playing doing computer games. Yes. Like that guy's just a joke. There's a real dismissal of Nedry. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and then he realizes, I mean, he, when he's sort of like, eating shoveling ice cream in his face and panicking and about how everything's gone wrong he's like well we relied too much on automation automation was the problem the computers were the problem and not the fact that he brought dinosaurs back to life maybe it's also that again hammond is trying to get away from what he felt was the kind of illusory beginnings of his you know work as the flea circus there's nothing behind the curtain okay now there's something real We've got these people and there's hatching dinosaur eggs and you get to touch them. And then what Nedry's doing is kind of like in the illusion department is mm -hmm. typing code and it's mm -hmm. all numbers and it's who knows what's going on. And it's this kind of um, a kind of magic in a way, you know, because yeah. there's nothing tactile about it. At one point, um, Sam Jack, Samuel Jackson is like, he says, like, I hate this hacker shit, you know, because you're just <laughs> looking at the, you know, it's like, I just want this to work, right? I can't like smash it. Right. I know? mean, that's also how 
um, Sam Neill's character how it feels yeah. about about computers too. Like he's sort of, he he wants to like live in another period of time. He right. loves dinosaurs. He hates computers. Yeah, it's like whenever he tries to touch or he's go like near the he hates computers. That's right. These all these guys hate. Com- <laughs> well, the '90s was it's a it's a fashionable time to hate computers. Really? You know? Well, it was the transition. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like proto pre-internet really no one was really on it the internet it is true this movie know? does you- create dichotomies between pro-computer people and con-computer people because in the two kids yeah. too Lex is a self-described hacker and Tim sort of rolls his eyes at her and she's like he's like she never tries anything she never goes outside she doesn't live real experiences she's a hacker yeah I feel like that's <laughs> right I think the 90s was in a way 90s and early aughts were like the last time you could be basically just you know you could just be a normal person who had no engagement with computers. Right. You know, like now it's, you, you can't, right? You live, half of your life will be spent on the internet. Sorry. Right. Uh, but 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 back then, I think, yeah, you could just be like, I'm an outdoor kid. I don't play with it. I don't have an f- iPhone. Or <laughs> it is, I mean, and this is a movie that straddles practical effects and and uh, CGI. Right. Too. It's, it's a bridge movie in that sense. Um, so it's funny that these characters are also kind of playing out being on either side of pro or con computers. Of these two things. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the CGI is, does look good uh, for its time. I mean, the worst shot, I think, are the bright daylight shots, I think. Yes. Any yeah. of that. It's smart that they went to daytime, to yeah. nighttime pretty quick. Because the daylight shots, even at a distance of the dinosaurs, are um, lacking. But... Then they don't actually have that many VFX shots in the film. But what's so impressive is that because they're still in this age of practical filmmaking, when they can do it practically, they do it. So anytime there's a close-up of the dinosaur, that is a dude in a suit, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, I mean, it's it's an animatronic thing or whatever. And it's um, kind of a just, you know, there's nothing quite can replace that. Like Grant leaning his whole body on the mm-hmm. sick... Uh, triceratops. Uh, triceratops right as he's breathing every time one of the monsters monsters one of the dinosaurs either the t-rex or the velociraptor puts its nose near a window and snorts yeah and you get the puff of air that's it's incredible and i i could imagine that would look that would be very very difficult to render in a computer i mean not even back then compared now you i don't think you could do it no and, I, mean, I mean in a way that would feel and look real yeah. Because you get the steam as it sort of recedes off of the glass. I mean, fin- Fincher is so good at sneaky CGI, and I still feel like that moment where they're where they are, you can see their breath outside when they're outside of a party at um, mm. in um, Social Network is so obvious. Like steam is really and smoke is really hard to quite get on CGI. Yeah, I mean, especially in a close up. Yeah, right? you're doing close up, and it's it, you have to capture the the sort of moisture as it goes on the glass and then recedes. I mean, it looks great and it reminds you, that's the thing, is it? it's such a smart thing because it reminds you that these things are real. They're breathing. They're warm. And they're warm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really uh, an, an intense thing and it's such a smart way to sell the illusion. Also, I, mean, I just think the practical effects of the dinosaurs are great. Like the the skin of the Triceratops is, it's all like modeled and ridgy it has all these like dry crusty bits on it yeah you it's know? like a lizard skin right yeah it's really cool and i think that is the kind of tactile thing that it's so difficult to do with cgi i mean it would require immense amounts of rendering and even then i don't know if we're there 
So having that for all the close-ups is so smart. And trying to do as much close-up as you can, right? I mean, the T-Rex is mostly practical. It only goes CGI when you, have, when you, when you get a wide shot like of him walking or something. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, it's, it's really scary because you, you go in the car with the kids, for instance, and they're in the car and the T-Rex is pushing him. Maybe after he pushes him over and you sort of see the nose come down and the eye dilate and, and all those things are done in close-up. So you're getting the perspective of the kid and then you see the T-Rex right there, you know, like, and it just, it's so extreme. And I think that's the scene that if you're going to say, oh, this is a horror movie, it's that scene. Absolutely. I mean, the Veloc- Velociraptor stuff is great too and is quite scary, but that is such a standout sequence, the T-Rex sequence, that, you know, really is a high watermark for like Steven Spielberg scenes in any movie that he's done. Uh, it's so good. And it's so it's I'll say one more thing about it, actually. We're going to talk about it a little bit more at length in a second. But the other thing is the music drops out. Mm-hmm. You know, the music has this. I mean, we should also just say the music is great. John Williams. It's obviously a classic score. What else can we say about it? But the music is this soaring majestic, you know, awe-inspiring score. And then when the music drops out and it's just the noises of the T-Rex and the growling and crunching, and crunching. Of, the, of the of the car as it's getting like just scrunched up like a can. You know? And they're screaming. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, you're hearing the the rain, the pitter-patter of the rain on mm-hmm. the on the roof and everything i mean it's that's what i think it adds to the terror is you, you know so far you're just like i'm on this like adventure theme park adventure and it's got this cool music and i'm i'm, I'm you know lifted up and then it, the music is gone and all of a sudden it's like the safety belt came off right. and and now you're in free fall and it's terrifying <laughs> The other theme I wanted to mention, which, you know, gets at anything bad that will happen, or sorry, that can happen, will happen. That's the attitude of Ian Malcolm, the chaos theorist. And I think what's kind of interesting is that Malcolm is, he's sort of set up as the, like, counterpoint to Hammond. They have sort of completely opposite viewpoints. Malcolm has this, you know, anything goes attitude. There's, there's no, no one, don't take any responsibility for anything because nothing's really in your control any, anyway. Everything's just random. And then Hammond, who thinks maybe nature is random, but I'm not. I can control it. I can mm-hmm. control nature and I can bend it to my will. And by doing that, he under he ha- undertakes the responsibility and he fails, right? And that's his failure ultimately in the movie is he's he creates this stuff, but he's not able to um, to do so safely and ensure everyone can you know be be well. Uh, I think when you when you think about it in terms of chaos and order in that way, now think about Malcolm, who's 
we're, we learn that he's had many children, different women. He doesn't seem to take responsibility for anything, <laughs> right? He's just like living this kind of I mean, his response to you care. have kids is uh, what can happen will. Yeah. Exactly. It's he's just like, yeah, I spread some seeds around and some of them grew with the kids. Look yeah. at that. <laughs> like as if he didn't have anything to do with exactly, it. Exactly. Because he yeah. doesn't think that he is really responsible because he's just like, well, it's random. It's like I'm just rolling dice. Yep. And, you know, I think that's an interesting contrast. I mean, I think also this is in the topic of children and procreation, of course. Yeah. Which is we learn very early on something that Grant and... um uh, something we learned that Grant and Ellie are talking about, right? And, you know, Ellie wants kids, Grant's not totally sure. You know, creation is this act, either it's an act of will if you're Hammond, or it's random uh, in the case of, of Malcolm. But if you believe that it's a, an act of choice, as, in, as Hammond does, and I think as Grant does ultimately, then you have to recognize that you bear responsibility for that creation. And I think that's one of the things I think Hammond, sorry, excuse me, that's one of the things I think Grant is concerned about. And it's that, you know, you're going to have kids and you're going to have all these responsibilities and he wants to be at his dig site and he doesn't want to be taking care of kids. Well, you're also making a choice to bring something into the world that you also recognize you have no control over. Ultimately, there Mm. is even when you make a choice, a conscious and responsible choice to bring life into this world, there is randomness, right? Whatever comes out is whatever comes out, like genetically, right? Like you don't, I mean, that's he points to this kid and says, you want kids? Like, that kid's kind of a jerk. And, and Ellie says, well, I don't want that kid. Yeah. But, like, I want some species, you know, like some, like, iteration of whatever will whatever we might make would be yeah. intriguing. I think I can't remember her exact line. But, yeah, that's what's really scary is that Hammond thinks he can make a dinosaur and he can know everything about its genetic code and know for sure what will happen. He knows for sure they're all girls. He knows for sure none of them will ever breed. He knows for sure he can like keep the, keep everybody safe. He thinks that if he is just in every little detail of creation that he knows the outcome and you just don't. Yeah. You just don't. And it's really scary. That's right. And I think that <laughs> you're right. And that's one of the great things about the film is that each of these characters has to undergo an arc with respect to this very point. So Grant ultimately has to deal with children right he has to (laughs) he has to you know be a hero to the chaos of of children he has to rescue them and hammond of course has to deal with the fact that there's an aspect of creation that's out of his control Mm -hmm. and i think what's interesting is that malcolm although there does there's less of an arc with with ian malcolm he i think his arc happens i think very early on in the film so he kind of comes in i don't give a shit about anything it's all chaos right, let's just, I'm going to go have sex with someone, right? Like, that's his whole vibe. He's, like, super (laughs) horny. But when he sees the dinosaurs for the first time, he is awestruck just as much as everyone else. And what's the line he says? (laughs) You did. You crazy son of a bitch, you did. And I love that line, (laughs) and I love the line reading that, that Goldblum, the way he says it, and he has this kind of smirk but that sort of betrays a kind of he's actually overwhelmed with a type of emotion. Like maybe it's even an emotion he hasn't felt mm-hmm. for a long time, right? And I I like that you see this guy humbled in a way. So they, so I think in a way all, he kind of realizes, okay, yeah, you can do these acts of pure will and and break through the chaos 
And I think that's one of the most central themes of the film. And that, and I think it's what ties all these characters together. And in particular, when they're having that meal and they're all chatting about their different views about things and you kind of get the different sides and you see how everyone is interplay. I think that's, that's really nice exposition, both for the narrative of the film setting up, you know, what's going to happen, but also telling you who these characters are. So I think that's all great. I think the writing on this is excellent. And actually, this is kind of funny. We watched the other JPs. We not did. The, not the new JWs. We watched the JPs. And uh, they suck. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. But they, I mean, the writing is, even though two is written by the same people who wrote one, it is a sweaty, exposition-filled piece of trash. And it's unbelievable how <laughs> nonsensical and like overstuffed it is. You know, compared to this movie, it's which sort is sort of self-aware of how much it has to like backtrack and change some stuff because they're like, wait, 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 there's another island. Forget about the first island. Here's a new isla. And uh, that's where all the other dinosaurs are. That was there the whole time. We just didn't tell you about it in the first movie. And then at some point, Ian Malcolm says about him and he goes, you're from capitalist to environmentalist, like in like two seconds flat. Like yeah. he's just like, oh, your character. I think conservationist. Changed. Conservationist. Because he's like interested in preserving the dinosaurs' natural habitat now <laughs> and not just like bringing them to but San Diego. Like that's like a little winky. Like, yeah, we had to change some character. We had to move some stuff around. Okay. Like, was- I mean, it's, it's fine. <laughs> I, I, here's the thing. I would forgive... I would honestly forgive all of that if the movie was actually good. You know, if it was had this like stupid 25 minute setup thing and 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 then it was actually awesome, but it unfortunately isn't awesome. But that's fine. The first one is awesome and It's hard though. I don't know quite how you would do another one because the first one is all about the awe of something you've never ever seen before. You know, you've imagined it and now it's big on this, you know, it's in for the characters, it's in front of them. For us, it's on the screen for the first time. There's that like, there's so much and there's so much withholding for until you see the dinosaurs. There's so much withholding to see the T-Rex. You see the like, you see the the goat several times and the T-Rex doesn't come to see the goat. And then you just see the T-Rex's eyeball and then you just see the T-Rex's claw. You know, there's so much like sort of te- teasing us. And then by by two... Yeah, you already know. You already know what the yeah. dinosaurs look like. You can't quite relive the moment of like, oh my gosh, it's a Brachiosaurus, you know? That's sort of the magic of the first one. I so agree I'm not sure with that, how you do a, but I, a good sequel. I think there's more to the magic of the first one than just that. Agree. But, no, but, but it's a piece of it. Is what yeah. I, I mean, I think a, an, another a similarly exciting T-Rex thing would be fun. I think though what they do in the second one is just by contrast, just not very good. And yeah, I think you need something like that. And if it had a centerpiece like that, it would be excellent. I do, I will say about the second one, I like the inclusion of the dynamics between the different factions and that they're these like hunters and then these more environmentalist types. And I kind of like that. And and it was when they sort of end up having to work together, I, I thought that was nice. So I, I think it's also a very weird pivot to take the the funny snarky side character of the first one and then make him like the hero and that's a classic sequel move yeah i mean it's classic they're like did you like this sidekick what if you had an entire sidekick movie (laughs) first of all we love the sidekick but i don't love when the sidekick gets their own movie i think that's usually okay except for maybe in cars too when you get more mater so Pro I think you're alone in that regard. But <laughs> Nobody else likes yeah. cars, too. Uh, <laughs> haven't seen it. 
<laughs> seen it 100 times. <laughs> so we've talked about the tactility of the practical filmmaking, but I now want to talk about the look of the film. Yes. And I want I to single out one scene to, to just <laughs> illustrate this. So this movie was shot on 35 millimeter film. Now, I don't, I'm not a only 35 or bust person. I actually think a lot of, there's a lot of really interesting digital looks out there. I mean, obviously there's, it's very popular now to say Miami Vice, but I will say I am also kind of into the look of the super high res digital. So I'll give you an example. We recently watched The Gray Man, which is a terrible movie, but, and it has a bunch of really ugly CGI in it. But when they're not doing CGI, they're shooting on these six, uh, I think it's 6K uh, Sony Venice cameras. And the, and it is crisp. Yeah. Like, it is super precise. You like to be able to see, like, if somebody's about to get a pimple. Exactly. Like, like what's like, inside their pore. I want to see the blood <laughs> flowing under their skin. <laughs> I want to see that level of detail. And this camera is getting you that level of detail. <laughs> 35 millimeter does not give you that little detail. Okay, so I'm just saying, there's there's lots of different looks out there. Looks. But I will tell you, there's also lots of, oh, sorry, lots of different good looks out there, right? It doesn't always have to be filmed. But there's also lots of bad looks out there. <laughs> and one of the things that really, your soapbox out. really <laughs> irritates me is the use of digital cameras these days to shoot night scenes with only ambient light. Because they can. So let me explain what's going on here. So to back up, the scene I want you to think about in Jurassic Park is the scene after the T-Rex battle when Grant and the kids are you know, going down the side of, I guess, the T-Rex camp or whatever, and Tim is stuck in the car, right? It's at night. The car is in the tree. Tim's stuck in the car. They got to get Tim out, and then they go off on their little adventure. But it's all at night. And watch that scene. Okay. When you watch it, you're not going to be thinking, you're not going to think this looks really unreal. You're just going to think it looks like they're at night. But it also looks as contrasty and as nice as the stuff that's shot during the day. It's not like suddenly we're at night and now everything is, looks like it's fucking gray <laughs> and you can't discern anything and it's just like a mess of gloppiness. No, it looks like they, it just looks clean, except it just looks like it's night. So what's going on? Well, to understand this, we need to understand how film stock works. So film stock, I won't go into that, but here's the thing. <laughs> film stock is not very light sensitive. Okay, film in general is not light sensitive. And movies in particular, feature films, are not going to shoot on high sensitivity film because it's going to have you look really grainy. So they usually shoot at low ISO films. So you know, 100 to maybe 400 max. They're not shooting very high ISO. Okay, if you think 400 ISO, if you have a, have a digital camera, if you, you know, you go 400 ISO, like, that's not very much light. But what else can you do to get more light on the film? You, you know, you're, you can open your aperture, right? Let more light in. But then you create a shallower depth of heel. It's harder to keep things in focus. There's no sort of equivalent of changing the shutter speed because you have this thing called shutter angle and you, you have to have a certain certain degree of shutter angle, 180 degree shutter angle, or else the film stock's not going to expose correctly. So you're kind of blop, you're boxed in. There's only, you know, so what you have to do as you're shooting on film at night 
is you have to hide lights all over your location, right? Lights that if you were on this film set, you'd think, whoa, this is going to look horrible. It's just like really bright. Really bright lights are going to be all over the set. But those lights are strategically hidden. So in that scene I'm talking about, there's like a big tree, right? And the car is stuck in the tree. There's a huge light behind the tree. That's supposed to be the moon. And it's coming through the tree and it's blooming out everything so you can see all the branches of the tree really clearly. There's also a bunch of lights behind the camera, right? On different sides that are like probably a kind of bluish tint. And they're, you know, they're, they're not high powered lights, but they're kind of this bluish light. And they're shooting on the, on the actress, you can see their faces. These are lights. These are not real. They're not shooting with ambient light. Like this is all probably shot in a studio with studio lighting, but it looks good. It looks like nighttime, but it also, it's not like any nighttime scene you've ever experienced in real life, but it doesn't matter. I think it looks great. Now, go to to cut to today. And when you're filming on a digital sensor, those sensors are incredibly light sensitive. So a lot of digital sensors can go, I mean, there are like prosumer level sensors, digital sensors that can go to 100,000 ISO. Now, they don't look great at 100,000, but they look good at like 56,000 ISO. Those are prosumer, not even like the cameras these guys could film on. Now, of course, there's, that will introduce a lot of digital artifacting, so they probably aren't going to go that high. But they can go pretty high in the ISO, right? We're talking like 400 to maybe like 12,000. It's quite a bit more light they're letting in. So as a result, they don't need all these studio lights to light it, right? They're just like, I just crank the ISO. We got the dynamic range, and then we can color grade it in post and, and do what we want. But the result is everything is the same gray, muted, non-contrasty look. It looks like, first of all, it's very hard to discern things unless you're watching on an incredibly bright monitor. And so as a result, it just looks like this gray mess. And I'll give you some examples of this. The Batman. The whole fucking movie is a huge gray mess because they <laughs> shoot it digitally and they're like, yeah, we don't need fill lights. Let's just, let's just shoot you know, with like very low light. And fine that it's going to have this element of realism, maybe. It doesn't feel that way to me. But, you know, they're going for a kind of realism. But as a result, you lose contrast. You don't get like glows behind characters' heads. And you don't get, you know, a little bit of fill light to like brighten the eyes, right? It's, everything's just dark. The Gray Man is another example of, <laughs> of a movie that uses a lot of gray tones is in in one of the early you know fights it's it's just it's you know shot in incredibly low light and looks like garbage so you know i just think one of the things i loved about this movie watching it this time was just how good the night scenes looked and i think it's a shame because that, that we've gone to this kind of gray washed out look because we don't have to the digital sensors don't have to do that the digital sensor can mimic film you could shoot a night scene on a digital sensor with 400 ISO and do studio lights and it'll look awesome. In fact, actually, they do that in Starsborn. They do some night shots in Starsborn that look great. And in fact, it was so much so good, actually, that I thought when I was first watching it that this might have been shot on film. Mm. But no, it was just lit better. So that's my plea. If there are any filmmakers listening to this podcast, <laughs> just kidding. Nobody's listening to this podcast. But listen, if you're thinking about making a film and you're shooting on digital because, hey, who's, who's not shooting on digital these days? Just light it like you're shooting on film. It's going to look great. And that, anyway, that's my TED Talk. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> I mean, speaking of dinosaurs, I mean, did you have a favorite dino? I mean, there's the T-Rex. He's very big and the he T-Rex. can run at three, 30 miles per hour. That's how they, that's where they clocked him. Um, He's very uh, strong, too. I think that I did see a little bit of this on TV. And the scene that I saw was the Dilophosaurus. I don't know if I put the, the, the emphasis in the right syllable there, but the the spitting one, the one that has the giant, the collar that comes out and he hisses and spits poison on your face. <laughs> I saw the death of uh, of Nedry. Uh, of Nedry and um, yeah, that I was like, nope, not watching Jurassic Park for 10 years. I, like, I mean, I, it scared me so bad. That's a, a candidate for potentially actually the scariest scene. Because... Yes. The terror of when you see this thing's collar and it's like hissing and this collar's moving in this really unnatural ah, way. Yeah. And then it spits and, and you know, you're like, what is this? doesn't seem real. And it's apparently not. It's a made up dinosaur. But it just it feels like an alien. Right. And it feels yeah. like if you know, it kind of reminds me of the this thing in Independence Day. Right with the like yes. with the tentacles and Ooh. stuff. There's just something Ooh. not natural. My like about body that. just like jerked when you said it. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I agree. That that one that guy is really scary. And he's a made up dinosaur. I think so. Mm. There were no, unfortunately there were no That's dinosaurs okay. with collars that spit poison at you. Yeah, I guess I haven't seen any of those in our books. Mate, I've been reading a lot of dinosaur books with our three-year-old, and uh, that one has not come up, so I should have known. Although I also learned that a Velociraptor is the size of a dog. It's like maxes <laughs> out at like thirty-five pounds. Like it's like his, which by the way is the weight of our three-year-old. So that really like <laughs> takes the wind out of my sails for the Velociraptor. <laughs> The mutant velociraptors. I, I mean, know. that velociraptor sequence at the end, you get this kind of extended sequence where the game warden guy is being hunted, mm -hmm. and then the kids are hunted in the in the in the kitchen, and that's also really scary. Because so yeah, they're also making because they're talking to one another in their weird like growly whatever it is like barky growl voice, and it's really weird and scary. I find that just incredibly unnerving. I mean, forget the fact that there are kids being hunted by these things. It's just the noises they make I mm -hmm. find really, really scary. Yeah. And just the, also the sort of the, the sheer strength of them. Like they jump up on the counter and they knock everything over and they have, they can open doors and stuff. It's And they're really fast. There's like something where you're like, ah, crap, this thing is... That is a pretty good cow. And they're like, unless these things learn how to open doors, and then it gets this little clock. Yeah. <laughs> Almost immediately. <laughs> it's inside. Follow me. 
You've also been so you've also been reading about dinosaur poo poo. I have. And there's a there's a really prominent dinosaur poo in this movie, the the sick triceratops. (laughs) Is that accurate, would you say? No. From what I've seen of fossilized dinosaur poo-poo, the biggest one is like two feet long. So I don't Mm. this seemed like it was like a pile that's like as big as me. (laughs) It was a really big doo-doo pile. I mean he was sick. I know. Poor guy. Um yeah, I don't I don't think that might have been a little bit. But you know who knows cuz the process to make dinosaur doo-doo fossil is is complicated, you know, it needs to drop in the right place and get buried and then get fo- you know, it's it's not every poo-poo that turns into a yeah, fossil. Yeah, it could poo-poo. also be that there's some degradation before it gets buried, true, so you true. know, who so, do, how do we know? So maybe accurate. Yeah. I don't know. I used to refer to some of my sons you know, poo- diaper poo-poos as triceratops. <laughs> <laughs> They're really <laughs> Someday he's gonna listen to this and be so embarrassed. <laughs> I'd like come down from the changing table and tell Justin I was like, that's a real triceratops situation up there. You come down and you're like wearing you got your like gloves all the way up to your your armpits. <laughs> your like plastic gloves. I know she just like rips them off and Ian Malcolm's like, be sure to wash your hands. <laughs> he is definitely me in that scene. I'm just like I would have, but not, but see, one difference is I would be wearing like a full respirator. Cause you can imagine how stinky that would be. Mm. There's like flies buzzing around. I'd be in a respirator. They'd be like, where'd you get that respirator, Ian? I always carry one. <laughs> always, always. So is your vote for the, <laughs> for the sick triceratops? No, no. I, I don't know what my vote is, but I, I also want to just mention the brachiosaur, right? Mm, the big mm-hmm. brachiosaurus, uh, the practical one, not the CGI one in the distance, but the practical one. Who uh, who sneezes on on Lex? <laughs> I like that one. That one's funny. It's cute. That one reveals like a real like Universal Studios ride moment. You know, the, when you do like whatever the predecessor to 40X was. Yeah. You know, I went to Honey and I Shrunk the Kids. Did you do that one yeah, at Disney World? And you got sneezed on yeah. by the dog. It's, it's fun. You know, it's a good. It was like not clear uh, spray either. It was what? pretty gross. Uh, it no. wasn't water? No, 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 no. Oh, you, mean, a, I you mean, mean on Lex. On Lex. The yeah, Brachiosaurus. Sure, sure. <laughs> it was really There was probably some Vaseline in there and some dino <laughs> snot, obviously. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I want to pick, but I really, those are all great, great dinos. Yeah, I think, I think just you don't have a lot of them that you're spending time with, but you kind of get to know them pretty well. Yeah. Or at least the T-Rex and and the Triceratops and the Brachiosaurus, we, you know, we kind of just focus in on a couple. Mm-hmm. And um, weirdly, I think the, the, the sequels have too much dinosaur and not enough dinosaur. Yeah, I agree. You see a lot of them, but you don't really get to spend any time with them or like learn about them or t- like just well, how much time you get in, with the Triceratops, you yes. know? And in Jurassic Park 2, their their whole thing is that Mama T- T-Rex cares for her baby T-Rex. That's like the really important thing that like they're trying to establish. And in Jurassic Park 3, they're like, Velociraptors are the smartest creatures that have ever lived. <laughs> that's, that's like what they're revealing. And you're like, this is stupid. Yeah. That's the thing, too, is that maybe this movie is stupid, but it doesn't make you feel like it is ever. Like, I feel like when they're doing the little DNA, when they're doing the little DNA video and they're just like, we put in some frog DNA and we got it from mosquitoes. I'm sitting here being like, okay. <laughs> I looked over at Laura the first time she was watching. I'm just She's taking like, notes. Yeah, you were taking yeah. notes. You were like, oh, man. Huh. Huh. Okay. Oh, okay. How All come right. nobody's done this? 
I don't know. Like, I never have a moment where I like look away from the movie. Like, come on, can you take a get a load of this? Like, it's great. I'm, it's I'm really with it. it's it. That's sort of one of his strengths. <laughs> I mean, the other one of his strengths is Sam Samuel Jackson saying, "Hold on to your butts." Hold on to your butts. He does it twice. I forgot he does it twice. Mm, it's so nice. You have to say it twice. That's true. <laughs> and he's just doing it with a cigarette half out of his mouth. <laughs> he's so like. Oh, yeah, he dies. I forgot. I was like, what happens to him? No, he dies. he's straight up eaten by a velociraptor. Yeah. yeah. We saw his arm, though. So that's how you know. And everyone everyone gets got, except for the except for the principals. Man, dang. It's a, yeah. It's a brutal movie. Turns out, Dinosaur Park, bad idea. I mean, if you had a higher fence and... <laughs> Less automation. <laughs> Too much reliance on automation. Definitely. No computers. I would have no computers in my dino park. <laughs> Um, but I'd have it staffed with underpaid laborers. <laughs> yeah. And they'd be like, hey, uh, Mr. Hammond, can we get some more money? I'd be like, hey, that's your problem. <laughs> Don't bring those problems to me. <laughs> I'm sure it'll go great. That's Jurassic Park. <laughs> that's all we have to say about this movie. It's a good movie. It's, it's a, a really very good, good movie. That's movies. why we want, we wanted to do this on this podcast because one of the things we do on this podcast is we revisit movies from either one of our childhoods or, or, or adolescences and go back to, you know, what made them important to us, made them valuable, you know, how did they resonate with us? And oftentimes those movies have interesting themes and I think this is no exception. So Jurassic Park, it stands up, it stands to the test of time, it's a good movie and um, I quite enjoyed watching it for the thousandth time. <laughs> and um, next week, we are starting the Lord of the Rings miniseries. Oh my gosh, it's already happening. That's right. Not next week, but next time. Yes. We're in two weeks, two weeks schedule. And we'll be starting with the Fellowship of the Ring with guests Bennett Eckert and Rebecca Kwong. So tune in for that. And you can find us on Twitter at CowsPod or go on the web to cowspod.wordpress.com. That's our website. And if you want, we now have two, count them two, shirt and uh, we have merch, merch designs. designs right for shirts mugs totes one is Werner herzog and the other is uh, two cows so go check that out it's cowspod.threadless.com so check it out and we'll see you here in two weeks hold on to your butts <laughs>